Bandwidth for This Week in Photography is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This week on the show, Canon releases new point-and-shoots, recovering lost photos, We See the Sign, and Andrew Darlow joins us to talk about photo printing, right here on This Week in Photography. Hey, Shutterbugs, it's that time you've been waiting for. It's the end of the week, which means it's time for the Twippers to get together. That's right, this week in photography. I've never known that I would become a Twipper in my life, but I'm a Twipper now. And uh, I'm Scott Bourne, and I'm going to drive the show today along with my fellow Twipper, Alex Lindsay, who's here in the Padango studio. How's it feel to be a Twipper? I love being Twipper. I like going out for Twips. All right, the show has potential to digress into a really bad way almost immediately. So let's immediately save it and go over to Frederick Johnson down in San Jose from uh, Adobe headquarters, or you're just working out of your home studio today, Fred? No, I am here in uh, Adobe Central in the uh, downtown San Jose today. All right, any planes hit the building today? Not yet, but you know, I saw some landing gear come awfully close, but. <laughs> Just, just just for clarification for the folks who don't know, Adobe sits right in the flight line on the way to San Jose International Airport, so flights fly right over our West Tower, and you can almost jump up and touch the landing gear. They're so close. That is close, and I've seen it for myself. Uh, of course, Fred is a, a honcho with the, the Lightroom Brigade over there at Adobe, and Alex is the uh, chief, chief, chief. Triple Chief Honcho at PixelCore, PixelCore.tv, PixelCore.com. And uh, last but not least in today's cast, uh, Hermosa Beach, is that the location, Ron? That is right, and I am a honcho of nothing. And Ron Brinkman is here, who is a honcho of anything that's related to special effects. That's what Alex tells me. And photography, imaging. Imaging. He's got some background there. Photography, imaging, special effects. And he's in Hermosa Beach. Is it raining there? Oh, it's beautiful, as, as it always is here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Raining up here in San Francisco. You know, I left, I left my, my mansion in Gig Harbor, which cost a whopping 500 grand, to come to San Francisco for a 783-square-foot condo that cost a million and a half to get rain, which I could have got for 500 grand in Gig Harbor. <laughs> I was in Seattle uh, yesterday. It was actually kind of nice. So. Oh, yeah. Well, see, there you go. And I was in Austin last weekend. It was, uh, it was near freezing. Yes, well, I bet they don't do well with that in Texas, do they? No. No. Today we have a lot to talk about. We do have uh, some news. Some news. Uh, We have a potential answer to the D300. Rumored. I don't say it's an answer to the D3 because it's not. It's not nearly priced in the same category. It's not designed to be the same camera. But Canon Canon is allegedly... Allegedly, and I want to make the word allegedly bold, capitalized, and underlined, coming up with the 5D Mark II. Uh, there's some rumors posted on Ars Technica and a couple of other sites that Canon's going to release the camera or announce the camera. I've heard two different stories in June. It's going to allegedly have a very high ISO capability like the Nikons. It's going to have a brand new sensor, allegedly, which supersedes the capacity and capability of the sensors in the current 1D3 line, 
the Mark III line, which would be very interesting to me, and uh, allegedly priced around $3,500. I don't know if any of this is true, but I sure hope it comes true because the Canon 5D is a little long in the tooth, Alex. They have not updated that camera. And frankly, I was really surprised that they didn't announce something at PMA. So the timing's right for it to be true. Yeah, it'll be... Uh, this is the If it's true, this is the direction that I think it needs to go. I think you need to... The high ISO, I think, is something that's important. Now, one of the things that we've been getting some comments on uh, uh, from uh, listeners is that the high ISO, there's some arguments that are being made that the high ISO, uh, number one is that the, the 12,800 uh, 12, and the 25,600 are, are kind of marketing. They're just turning that gain up just a little bit further. And you're not really getting that much more than you would have if you just took the 6400 ISO and cranked it. Um, the second thing is, is there's been some people talking about the D300 saying that the... You know, you're losing a lot of detail. What they're doing is they're filtering that stuff right, real heavily. Right. So it doesn't look grainy, but you, you would lose that. De if you took it into Noise Ninja or something like that, you'd get a similar image and you'd lose similar amounts of uh, detail. Something we have to test uh, as soon as something. And we're going to test yeah. these eventually. But I do want to say that um, I received something like 300 emails last night saying, Scott, don't switch. They're updating the camera. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about that when we know it's true or if it's true. Also, Canon issued three more PowerShot IS cameras, bringing the total number of Canon PowerShot point-and-shoot models to 3,212,967. Uh, two million of those released in the last two years. Uh, any, anybody look at this camera or the specs on it? Uh, well, yeah, they announced three of them, and uh, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's kind of another big yawn. There's nothing all that interesting. One of them has a it's a very compact and has a slightly larger zoom range, which might be kind of nice. Although for me, they did it at the expense of having a wide angle, so it starts at a 35 millimeter equivalent of about a 37 millimeter. Most of these start at 35, and you can get some of the small cannons that are about 28 millimeter on the wide end, which is, in my mind, always the way to go, because, I mean, you need to have at least some semblance of wide angle, I think, when you've got a little pocket shooter. Yes, well, it's hard to get excited about these new point-and-shoot cameras. Um, there's so many of them every every week, it seems like. The one the one thing I will say, and when we look at either this or the new Casio that just got released, the new um, Exelum uh, uh, that was released uh, this week, is that I think we are seeing this leveling off in the point-and-shoot of the megapixels. I think that war is kind of over. I hope so. Uh, we're seeing 8, 10, but it hasn't, it changed very quickly for a while, and then it just got to a point where I think that, that we, I think most people feel like we, we've gotten far enough, you know, for a point-and-shoot. Well, and I, I think Electronista makes a good point that the, uh, what this does is pretty much rounds out the entire Canon point-and-shoot line with stabilization on it, and I think maybe face detection too. So those are all kind of becoming you know, default things where you just can't even ship a camera without it. Well, that, yeah. that begs the question: What's <clears throat> what's next for for point and shoots? Then you know, they, it seems like they've they've iterated and iterated. Now they are the point where they're at the waterline. So, what's next for these things? I, I think that I mean, I think that high ISO. What we're seeing in the professional cameras uh, is probably makes a lot of sense to start bringing down. I mean, <laughs> you you could you could just bring these up to most of these point and shoots aren't really useful over about 400 ISO. So getting them useful at 800 or 1600 wouldn't really affect the the upmarket, uh, you know, bigger SLRs, um, but it would greatly improve the value for the average person. On the low end, I can tell you what they ought to be doing. I don't know if they're going to do it, but on the low end, the $200 point-and-shoot camera ought to have a button that just says send to flicker. 
Yeah, some kind of wireless connection. Right. Just ought to have a button that says send to Flickr. You program in some stuff on your computer. You sync up once with your camera like you would maybe an iPod to iTunes. It gives all your Flickr account information. And from then on, you know, either wirelessly or when you hook up and sidechain through the computer, you hit a button that says send to Flickr. Boom. The first company to come up with that is going to have a winner because most people, unfortunately. It's already there, Scott. But who's it's already there. Who's got that? I think the, Sony's uh, doing it, isn't it? Aren't they? No. The folks at, the, at iFi created that. that well, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's I'm, I'm talking about at the manufacturer level. Oh yeah, the camera manufacturer level. If you come up with a camera that has that built into the firmware, well, and a lot of, you know all these cameras now have that direct print button. Yep, which I don't have never used in my life. Nor has anybody else, by the way. Yeah, and you know if that button was actually you know send to Flickr, I'd probably maybe even use it once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Well. Not that Canon or Nikon or Casio or Panasonic or any of those guys are ever going to listen to me. But, but I but think that's that what I do. Nikon, I think, actually listened to you a while ago. Yeah. Um, they yep. have a, uh, the Nikon uh, Coolpix, uh, the S51C. And I have to, because um, I know I'd seen this before, but I think that they're, um, I think it was Nikon that started to do these, um, uh, these Wi Fi cameras. And um, and I have to we'll have to do some more research. I was researching yeah. while you were talking, but they are there are some cameras that are doing that. Well, there are cameras that you can make do it. I know that. What I'm right. talking about though is the people that spend 200 bucks are the same people, you know, a lot of the time that have a VCR that's flashing 12 still, right. and they're not going to know how to program it to do anything. It needs to be fairly streamlined so that it's just built into the firmware. You hit a button and it works. Let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk about. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about this because if someone types in the wrong URL, we're just going to skip this and discuss something else. The site of I the week is... I just want to know is, what a VCR is. What? What you I say? want to know what a VCR is. <laughs> the site of the week is DP Review. And let me tell you something. The reason why I no longer write in-depth camera reviews is because... I don't have seven weeks to spend on yeah. one lens, and and the folks at DP Review apparently do, because if you go to dpreview.com, there is mind-numbing, and that is not an exaggeration in any way, detail, about every camera and lens that pretty much comes out. They do a tremendous job, and if you're one of those kinds of people that wants to read an 18-page review that talks about every little piece of minutia on a camera or lens, that's where I'd send you. And they also have lively discussion forums that they get a little snarky at times, not, not like the nice TWIP discussion forums, but uh, lots of information. Uh, uh, Fred, you've been over there to DP Review, I take it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I spend a lot of time over there. That's, that's the stop when I'm in my initial lust phases for new <laughs> I, uh, I head over there to get the scoop, you know, and it's, it's you're right, Scott, it's, uh, no, it's a no, stir, no stone left unturned type site, you need to, you know, it should be on your list if it's not already there. Yeah, and you can find sort of information about just about any camera, and it's actually kind of nice as a historical site, too, because they've got their camera specs going back quite a few years, it's been around for a while, so you can find information about cameras that go back quite a ways. Yeah, the fellow that does it, I believe he's in England. And yeah, Phil Aspie. Yeah, and, and, and he just he's he does a great job. I believe he's uh, un, a very unbiased person. 
because I've seen him be very even keeled and, and unemotional and just giving the facts. I would trust his reviews. I do trust his reviews. And this is why when we do reviews, we tend to do them more from a user experience point of view. If you want, you know, if you want to know how many ounces the sensor and the camera weighs, go go to DP review. If you want to know, you know, what we think of it and how it feels in our hands, look at what we say. But uh, it's a great site. I encourage you to check it out. And as always, if you have a suggestion for our site of the week, why don't you just drop it off at our blog, which is located at www.twipphoto.com. You can also send us a direct email from that location. You can also drop it into the forum. That's right. We have our Flickr discussion forum, which is linked to right there. So, uh, you know, check it out. Let us know what you think. We'll, we'll look at those, and obviously we're going to receive more recommendations than we can talk about since we only do four of these a month. But who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll like the site that you do. DP Review is not going to be a controversial pick in any way. Let's move on. Speaking of our Flickr forum, Alex, we ran a contest, the Flickr Challenge was signs and we gave people two weeks this time because in between we did some critiques on the new critique forum i do want to say it's like what 2200 people now and 2200 people and i think that one of the things that's really interesting is that uh, there's so many photos as well to look through i mean sometimes oh, yeah. you see big groups but they have you know 3,000 people and you know 1,000 photos right you right. know and so um you know i think that we have a very prolific we don't have a well. lot of lurkers and and uh you know, what was really interesting, the first two challenges we ran, we had about 100 photos. Mm. This time, we had 250. I know. So, you know, almost 10, more than 10% of our Flickr discussion group members sent images in. And uh, we looked over them and, you know, heck, I could have picked 20 that would, be the, that would be the winner. Yeah. And, um, you know, but but we, you, you and I went through and uh, I know that... Uh, Ron, you looked at them. Alex and I actually came up with some consensus. Sorry, Ron. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> and uh, we, we picked the, the winner is Buckshot. The Buckshot photo was very intriguing. It's a, a sign that apparently has been hit with Buckshot. It's just the way it looks. The whole, I think the whole composition of the photo. And it's very striking and arresting, which I've said before on the show is, in, in my opinion, when you make a photograph, if you want to get attention, you want that to be considered good, make a photograph that's striking, that just arrests the viewer. And that was taken by Moby, Moby Avid. So, Moby Avid, uh, you are a lucky person because you're going to receive a copy of Steve Simon's book, the Republicans, and it is not a political statement. It's a photo documentary. And Steve, by the way, isn't here this week. He's in Africa. We were hoping we were going to be able to get him on via Skype, but that's a little bit dicey down there in Africa. He's down there shooting. And, and let me just mention something about Steve that most of our audience doesn't know. In fact, that I only recently found out. I mean, y you may or may not know Steve. Um, he's quite famous. He's quite accomplished. And he is a Nikon mentor. I didn't know that, but I was looking through one of the photo magazines the other day, and there's a big picture of Steve on an eight-page spread, a full-page ad, <laughs> where he's leading a workshop for Nikon down, I think, in South Carolina. So, you know, Steve's one of those unassuming, quiet guys. Unlike me, I'll tell you every great thing I ever did, but Steve, he won't let you know. He's a Nikon mentor, so when he talks, people listen, and his book is really good. So, Moby Avid, you'll be getting a copy. Send us uh, your contact information so we can send it off to you. We also have a runner-up. 
and uh, Private Custard is the name of this photographer, and he had a really interesting, well, I shouldn't say he, because Private Custard could be a she. Um, ha they had a really interesting photo called Kill Your Speed. And yeah. that was very intriguing. It had the you know car lights going around a corner, and then this sign lit up on the left. Man, that that got my attention. Yeah, it was. It, it, I think that the uh, I, I, what I really enjoyed about some some direction that some people took with the sign thing that wasn't really the intention, but it really. I think the ones that we looked at uh, where it had almost a double meeting. When you looked at Dead End, Dead End had a <laughs> Dead End sign and then a cemetery behind it. That was a good one. The, yeah. No parking right in front of the lava. The uh, you know some of them they really found telling a story uh, of the sign within you know an interesting story within the, uh, the camel within the crossing one was kind of funny. The camel crossing was hilarious. Anyway, um, lots of uh, great images. Do you want to say that uh, uh, an image by Liana Lehua received consideration? But since she's kind of part of our family, we wouldn't we wouldn't let her win. But she took a very interesting photograph of the Apple Store. That was that was I didn't realize that was her. It was yeah. a great photo. Yeah. Great photo, uh, but we 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 don't let the family win. So sorry, Liana. Anyway, <laughs> um, next Flickr challenge. Okay, enough of this madness. We're going to let you go out there and do it. High dynamic range. So so your job is to go out and actually create an HDR. So um, now you can either, uh, you know, the idea is just that we, we've done a little tutorial on how to put it together. Um, you can use, uh, the kind of workaround for this is if you haven't decided that you want to use photomatics, you remember that you can, for a smaller image, you can simply do a little, <laughs> little screen grab. You know, it's never going to be enough for you to, you know, you can set the photomatics to, you know, 1024 or whatever. It's not going to be something that you would use over and over again, but you can screen grab that uh, if you don't want to buy it just yet or if you want to go ahead and... It's fine to post stuff with watermarks or, you know, we'll understand if you're right, using right. a watermark on from, from Photomatics or... You can just you use can Photoshop. Also, but you can also use Photoshop. The tone mapping is a little bit more complicated in Photoshop. Right. Um, you can also use Bracketeer. So I showed you how to use all those. The, the key is to go out... And this is really trying... You know, I just want to encourage people to, to actually go out and try this for themselves. I don't think people need much encouragement because you know everywhere I go, HDRs on people's shirts. I mean, it's a. Yeah, it's, Fred, is there a is there a are, are you aware of a plug-in in Lightroom that helps with HDR? No, currently Lightroom doesn't doesn't uh, support HDR, uh, but it uh, we're looking at ways to make it interact with. Photoshop and the next version of Photoshop to make HDR much simpler. Okay. But currently, no, it doesn't. I thought there might be a third-party um, plug-in. Does, does Lightroom support third-party plugins? No, no, it doesn't. It supports third-party export plugins, but not image manipulation. It, I think what that is, then, if there's a third-party export plugin to some sort of HDR device, maybe. Ah, that could be. I haven't seen that. And, and Ron, what do you do for HDRs? Uh, I've, I've been playing with Bracketeer lately. I've used everything up to and including Shake quite a bit since I was involved with Shake, which it, people that don't know, it's a visual effects tool, but it's basically an image processing tool set. I like Bracketeer. It's, you know, there's sort of the classic definition of HDR, which is uh, build something that has the full dynamic range of the scene. But the real trick is, is, like Alex says, in the tone mapping part of it, how do you convert this really wide range of data into something that just looks cool. And Bracketeer is great for that because you don't have to think about the the light issues behind it. You just sort of put together something that looks cool. So, so, I, so, so here's I, how this is going to work in case you're new to our TWIP Flickr challenges. First, you need to join 
our Flickr discussion group, and the information on how to do that is at twipphoto.com. If you don't know how to get a Flickr account or to tag images, Liana Lehua from Girls Gone Geek did do a series of videos which are posted at twipphoto.com. They're not on the front page, so you might actually have to use the search box and type the word Flickr without an E, or you can just go to Flickr's great help site and look this up. I'm starting to get like dozens of emails from people saying, I can't find my photo. I think I tagged it. Well, I'm sorry. We don't have time to teach you how to use Flickr personally, but there is help on the Flickr site. Don't be lazy. Click the help button or look at this wonderful two videos, these wonderful two videos that Liana did. They're very detailed. They show you step-by-step what to do. And then you just tag the image, TWIP HDR for this challenge. You'll have two weeks to compete it, complete it, and then we'll announce the winner. In the interim week, once again, the gang of Twippers will be over there looking at images to critique. So we'll critique some images to, during the downtime in the middle week, and then two weeks uh, from today, we'll announce the winner of this challenge. And the winner of this challenge gets a free copy of my book, 88 Secrets to Wildlife Photography. So that that's the winner's prize. And uh, if you have suggestions for future Flickr challenges, please once again use the blog and send them to us. And what, one of the things I want to say is the big prize for this for everyone <laughs> is to get to practice. Well, and, and the other thing is is that there's a real opportunity to, to if you're doing HDR over the next two weeks with 2,000 other people or let's say 1,000 other people and you have questions to ask, this is going to be the easiest time for you to learn how to do this. So if you want to figure out how HDR works and do one for yourself and figure out tonal mapping, uh, whether we're giving you critiques or not, you're going to have a whole bunch of people thinking about the same problem at the same time. Sharing so their experience. you may decide you want to do HDR. I don't even know if I want to do HDR right now. Maybe I want to do it in six months or a year. But this is the opportunity for you to get over that hump quickly so that you at least understand how all that works. And, and by the way, I, I just want to give kudos once again to the TWIP Flickr discussion forum. We have almost 22, 2300 members last time I checked. I've only had to bounce one person for not following the rules. I've only had to delete four posts, period, for not following the rules. That's pretty amazing. Most photography blogs get pretty nasty and snarky pretty quick. Ours is a good one, and we're going to keep it that way. We appreciate you guys helping out with that. If you see something that's not right, send us an email. We'll fix it. We'll take care of it. And uh, the people there have been very helpful. I'm just so thrilled with the spirit of cooperation. I see everyone's chipping in. So let's move on because we got a very important guest today. Um, Andrew Darlow, are you there? Yes, sir. All the way from New Jersey comes Andrew Darlow, who is an inkjet expert and a good photographer and a friend I met a couple years ago, actually several years ago, at an Adobe Influencer Dinner in Las Vegas at one of the trade shows. And he's the author of an incredible book called 301 Inkjet Tips and Techniques, an essential printing resource for photographers. And Andrew, welcome to This Week in Photography. Thank you, Scott, and uh, your whole uh, illustrious group. It's, it's really an honor to be here. Well, we're honored to have you. I've uh, read your book, Andrew. I actually read the book. Not something people often say about a photography book. You read the book. I read the book, and it is the size of the New York Yellow Pages. <laughs> how, how long did uh, it take you to write this book, Andrew? Well, the research that went into it is probably about 15 years, but actually from the time I signed the contract till the time it arrived in stores was probably about two years. And who's the publisher? Uh, originally, it's Thompson, and now it's called Course Ascengage. Could you spell that? <laughs> sure. Thompson is T-H-O-M-S-O-N, but 
Now it's actually course technology at course.com. Okay. Well, you know, what, what, would, what was your biggest learning experience writing the book, Andrew? Because I know every time you write a book, you tend to learn as much or more of you, as your readers do. What, was you, what would you, you say your biggest learning experience was in, in writing the book? I think it was probably just because I had to research almost everything related to inkjet printing, like all the current models that say intermediate to advanced photographer would consider putting in their studio. Um, that was probably the biggest thing. And from that, just everything that came around that, papers, uh, inks, and what different inks can do in different printers and what you need to do to get the best output using, say, different software. And so that was sort of the main thing that I, that I learned and got from going through all the research for the book. Um, probably the most rewarding thing that I got from the book was just working with over 20 different photographers, people I had met over the years at different trade shows or I'd read their articles and I asked them to uh, be a part of the book. So I served both as a writer and also as an editor for a portion of the book. Well, you have a lot of experience with that. You used to edit a magazine. Tell us about that. Yes, that was uh, Digital Imaging Techniques. I edited that magazine for about two years. And that's part of a family of magazines that includes Studio Photography magazine. And that's still, uh, Studio Photography is still being published. Digital Imaging Techniques was getting much too close to the content of that. So they decided just to uh, continue publishing Studio Photography magazine. And that's at Imaging Info. Com. So that experience of two years speaking with hundreds of people and especially attending trade shows like PMA and Photo Plus and just interviewing so many people about their work and sort of what their passion is about photography uh, is pretty much what made this book possible. I mean, I could have written the book and not really consulted with others or included others, but I don't think it would have been nearly as interesting and it probably wouldn't have been over 500 pages either. <laughs> well, I want to say something. I, I know you, Andrew, personally, so I, I can vouch for the fact that you have a deep love of photography, perhaps one of the deepest loves of photography of any person I've ever met. And I think that really comes through in the book, and I think that's why it's, it's actually the kind of book that, that normally people would consider a reference book, but which I found the kind of book that you want to actually read. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, Yes. It, it, you know, the difference between mm -hmm. referencing and reading is pretty awesome. Uh, Ron or Fred, do you have any uh, questions you'd like to ask Andrew? Hey, hey Andrew, it, it's Ron. I'm just curious. You know, I, I mean, I, I think we all kind of keep up on the how fast camera technology is changing, but are printers changing that quickly too? I mean, is is there continued innovation? It seems like every, you know, six months to a year, there's there's radically new camera stuff. And what's the sort of acceleration on printer technology? Oh yes, I, I'd say much like cameras. The the evolution came maybe in the last two years, and now uh, it's pretty incremental. So over about two years ago, there was this huge move towards high-quality pigment ink uh, printing uh, from Canon, HP, and Epson. And Epson's been doing it for longer than just about anyone uh, in the pigment world for, say, the prosumer and the pro. Um, HP has been in the business, you know, even longer in, in different ways. But what happened just about two years ago, not only did the quality get to what you would call, and I'm going to make some quotes, photo quality, but both black and white quality on inkjet printers 
and also the pricing uh, became affordable for a lot of folks. And I'll throw another one in there. 17-inch wide printing became much more affordable. So we came to this point maybe a year, year and a half ago where uh, those three companies were really all just firing at full c cylinders with great machines. And now we're seeing incremental increases. Like Epson came out with an R1900 um, after a very successful R1800. And uh, Canon has their image program 5100 where they had the 5000 before. So it's similar to camera manufacturers, um, but you just have to look a little more closely for those incremental updates. You have to sort of read carefully to see what the real differences are. Is all the is all the ink? Uh, I mean, are you trading off these days between sort of photo quality, you know, photo like quality versus archival quality, or is all these are all these inks reasonably stable over a longer period of time now? Yeah, I, of course, everyone has a different uh, definition of reasonably stable. But I think if you're going to compare it to things like silver halide, uh, whether it's color, let's, let's compare it to color photography, whatever you can do in a lab. Pretty much the big three are all creating um, printers, pigment ink printers especially, that can well exceed what you can get with a color print, like a C print and things like that. Uh, when you start talking about silver halide in the darkroom, it's a little harder to, to match that, but uh, in many cases they're doing it, or at least getting very close. So ink technology is now at the point where you really don't give up gamut or the amount of color that you can put down on a piece of paper. Um, with pigments today and the right paper, you can exceed 100, 200 years according to uh, everyone who we look up to, Mr. Henry Wilhelm, uh, which is uh, wilhelmresearch.com. And he has a great uh, like listing of many different printers and uh, a description of their inks and how they do on different papers. So you're really not giving up much these days. You just need to, to know what paper to match with what printer and which ink. Andrew, I have a quick question for you. This is Frederick. So with just looking at the overall universe of you know, photographers, both amateur and pro, and sort of looking at it from the standpoint of who's printing and who's choosing to share their imagery digitally, like through Flickr with an R or you know, through SmugMug or online services like that. Can you give us a, like an idea of how many folks actually take it through from shot all the way through to print it and hang it on the wall and how many folks just you know, choose to share it with folks through online services? Oh, I hope this doesn't require math. No. <laughs> Let's see. Um, you know, percentage-wise, there are people who do studies and it's just overwhelming that the number of uh, images that are printed is so small it's probably less than uh one percent maybe even one tenth of one percent so percentage wise it's very small but the fact is there are like millions of images i think like there's some ridiculous number of images being uploaded every day i'm going to say somewhere around it's either one million or ten million and you can look up that but yeah. with that many images being created that means that you know even at a tiny percentage more images are being printed so it's really just uh the fact that more people have digital cameras more picture people are taking uh, more uh, pictures that they like meaning they're using better cameras they're taking more time so that they're they're going to want to print them and then it's just a matter of them knowing about the different ways in which they can print their work so it's not 
exactly an answer to your question, but I do believe that just with the sheer volume, uh, many more people are making prints. Andrew, uh, when someone's looking for a printer, uh, when they're thinking about buying one, what, uh, what should they be really paying attention to um, when they're out there looking? There's so many printers and so many options. It's kind of hard to figure out what we should be, what are the key things um, that we should be looking for? Okay, well, I didn't plant this question. Alex, you can attest to that, but I, this is one of the things that I thought about a lot when I was uh, writing the book because this is a question that everyone has for me. So what I did... Uh, in the book, in uh, the chapter on choosing an inkjet printer, is uh, it's on page 48. It, there are like 70 different uh, specific items that I came up with. Things like everything from cost to the maximum sheet width, whether it has to accept individual cartridges and not just like bundled ink cartridges, whether it has to be photo quality, whether it has to be an all-in-one device. Um, so I go into separate areas like ink and longevity, uh, stand and paper feed. So some people really want a printer that you can use a tray, like the HP Pro B9180 has a tray and a lot of the Canons have a tray where you can put 50 sheets or something and then you don't have to always say put a new sheet in. What do you, so, what do you, what do you think of, the, of all of these features that are there? What do you think are the most important ones that are really going to affect people? Okay. Oh, you had quoted... Uh, a gentleman, <laughs> and it was a couple shows ago. Mm -hmm. I believe it was uh, Joe Jackson. Uh, you can't get what you want right. until you know what you want. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to use that as a frame of reference and say that every person is different. I know what I want. I want you know, as, as much longevity and quality on both matte and glossy papers. I want a minimum of 17-inch wide printing and... Speed to me is somewhat important, but it's not as important as, as it is to someone who wants to make 100 uh, posters a day. So, uh, and I want big cartridges, like at least 50, 60 milliliters per cartridge. And just because I'm going to be printing a lot, and I just tend not to like to keep changing cartridges. So that's really important to me. And that's something I say to professionals. I say, well, you're looking at this and this printer. Let's say the Epson you might be looking at the Stylus Photo 2400, which is a 13-inch wide printer, but then Epson has this 3800, which much larger cartridges, and not that much more money. Yes, it's more, but honestly, I want to be making prints and not changing out cartridges so much. Well, let's, let's take a quick poll. Fred, what kind of printer do you have? Um, I'm currently enjoying that 3800. Love it. How about you, Ron? I actually, because I tend not to print photos, uh, I, I gave up on inkjets because they kept drying out on me, and I went ahead and bought a laser printer, which is just awful for doing photo printing, but it's pretty <laughs> handy for you know, doing quick proofs of stuff you've written. And Alex? Um, so, so I have an old Epson 1280, which I've never really updated. Um, I don't print very many photos, and when I do, my printer is mostly um, iPhotos, like Apple.com. Ah, that's so, a legitimate which, choice. Which Fred actually uh, was involved in. Yeah. I was. I used to manage that part. It took me a long time to come around, but now anytime I really want to print something, I just I build something in iPhoto and I just send it off to have to make a book out of it. So, Well, and Andrew mentions that as a valid choice, stuff like that. Andrew, what do you use? Well, I, um, if you ask my wife, she says, um, is that another printer that just came in the door? So <laughs> I, I have many, many printers, but I use just about... Um, 
primarily I also I use the HP Design Jet Z3100 and I also use the the Stylus Photo R2400 and uh, and the 3800 and the the Canon Image Prograph uh, 5000. I don't have the 5100 which has like an updated uh, set of black inks to reduce uh, color changing between uh, different light. So those are just three sort of the higher end printers. I also I happen to have an Epson all-in-one with the Claria ink set, which is kind of uh, a very interesting ink set, more or less uh, dye-based, yet with good longevity. So there's, those are just a few. And uh, on the topic of laser printers, that's actually a portion of my book. My book's not just about inkjet. In fact, one of my big questions to people is decide if you really want inkjet because color laser, I love. I think it's just unbelievable. I have a Dell 3100 CN. And this thing just, just it's it it just keeps going. I must have output over three thousand uh, color pages, like from internet stuff. When I do workshops, I've made bookmarks, uh, and it does images pretty darn good, you know, for for family and things like that. And I think I paid like four hundred dollars for it. So you really can't beat color laser for a lot of stuff. You just need to find the right printer for your purposes. So well, that, that's had- sort of just an overview. I've had some really good luck with a lot of photo printers. I go all the way back to, uh, I bought the Tektronics Phaser 450, which uh, made mm-hmm. prints that lasted six months, and we all thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, I had an iris printer, and then I had a second one, because I found out it takes two to make one work. But my oh, favorite right. printer right now is the 3800. I really, I think that's an amazing printer for the money, and um, I'm doing 16 by 20s on that that just blow me away. Um, I, I want to encourage everybody to think about this book and think about printing. I know the statistic is accurate. It's less than 1% of people print their photos anymore. But remember this. Printing is a very valuable way, first off, of, of archiving, of backing up. If you have a print, you always have a backup in the print. Second of all, to me, it's not really a photograph until it's a print. I want to share it. I want to hand it to somebody and see what they do. This book will help you get towards the way. We, we hope to uh, put some user questions to you, uh, Andrew. We're running out of time. I do, I do want to put in um, uh, just a couple and ask you to answer them very quickly, if you don't mind. Great. That sounds great. Um, um, Tom Torson wrote and said he wants to know the difference between the pigmented inks and the non-pigmented inks and and what the relevance of that is. Okay, well, up to now, for long-lasting prints, uh, you generally didn't even want to consider dye-based inks. Like Alex mentioned, he has a 1280 great printer, but it is dye-based, and they will either fade in different ways, especially if you don't use a special kind of paper called swallowable inkjet paper, but now, see, Epson has changed things a little bit, but Epson does have dye-based inks, and this Claria ink set is getting good ratings from Henry Wilhelm on both the microporous papers, which are more the traditional papers that you find for pigment ink printers, uh, as, as well as the swallowable ink, uh, paper, inkjet papers. So uh, the real difference between them is pigments are generally made from, pigment inks are made from little tiny, essentially like crystals of like sand and dye-based inks are generally like colored liquids if you want to think of the difference. So I go into that in great detail in the book, but just if you want to think of it that way, uh, in the past dye-based inks were really far ahead as far as the gamut, the amount of printable colors, uh, but pigments have 
have uh, certainly either uh, gotten very close or exceeded in some cases some dye-based ink sets. So okay, that just gives you a quick overview. That's good, and that's about the length of time we wanted you to take. That's perfect. And um, Susan... Gratnami, I hope I'm saying that right. Susan Gratnami wanted to know um, why her black and white prints have a slight greenish color cast sometimes and are shiny. And are shiny. Okay. The shininess is almost definitely just the ink and paper interaction. So if she was printing on like a, a matte paper or rag paper, like one of my favorites is Hanam Yul's Museum Etching. I recently did a, a long review of that. She wouldn't see it as being shiny. Um, greenish, that's a few things. It could be that she's not using a proper profile, or she may not be utilizing, say, an Epson's case. They have the advanced black and white portion of the driver, which helps to cut down uh, color casts. So she can try to do that, and she can play around in there with some different toning. It could just be uh, that the inks in her printer are either uh, not really suitable. Like, for example, the Epson R1800 has less uh, grays than the Epson R2400 and the Epson uh, R3800. Also, the newer Canons and the HPs, uh, the pigment ink ones, also have multiple gray inks. So that all helps to reduce that uh, color. Also, it depends what light you view prints in when you're Viewing prints under like a halogen, like a gallery light, often they'll look pretty neutral. But if you take them to daylight, they may look greenish. So that's something else that's really important and that I cover uh, both in the book. And if you go to PDN Gear Guide, I have five essential tips, and that's one of them. All right. That's very nice of you to answer those questions. And we appreciate people who sent in questions. We appreciate Andrew taking time to join us here on TWIP. Andrew, where can people find you if they want to see what you're up to? I know that you have a, uh, a blog. Yes. ImagingBuffet.com is my blog with tips for photographers and updates news. Like I just went to PhotoFest in Houston. If anyone is in the area, I highly recommend uh, you check out my article on that. And uh, InkJetTips.com, which is the... Uh, companion site for the book, and there are over 200 links there that I reference in the book, throughout the book, so that I can keep things updated and give much more information than that's uh, that's actually in the book. Well, uh, what's the retail price of the book? Well, according to this, it's 49.99 in the U.S. I don't know why Canada is much more expensive since we're at parity, I think, but uh, that's that's the starting point, and then you'll find it, you know, in most bookstores that I've been to and uh, Amazon for considerably less. And uh, you've offered to make one of your books available as a prize, I understand, Andrew. Oh, yes. I, I would be happy to. So sign what we're going to do is, uh, not this next coming challenge, but the challenge after that, we're going to give away one of Andrew's books. Highly recommend that you check it out on Amazon. If there are questions that we didn't answer or that Andrew didn't answer in today's show, guess what? Go buy the guy's book. It's all in there. And... Andrew, I got to tell you, I'm really glad that you took time to be on the show. I, I feel really, um, you know, I feel a special connection to you. I know how hard you work. I think uh, the information you provide our listeners is valuable, and I want to thank you for being on uh, This Week in Photography. Thank you, Scott, and thank you to all the Twippers. <laughs> thank Thanks, you, Andrew. Andrew. It's great. <laughs> okay, thank you. We're going to move on, and uh, we're going to also answer just a couple of generic user questions. Um, we have one 
from Terry Fife. I was copying pictures from my daughter's SD card to her MacBook, and only about 5% of the JPEGs are good. To worsen the problem, the SD card has already been reformatted. What happened, and how do I fix a corrupt JPEG file? Wow. Um, Terror. I, 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 you know, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> this is a tough situation, uh, you know, after the fact. Let me just throw this out there. Guys, are any of you aware of any um, SD or CF car, uh, card memory recovery programs that work? Yeah, I've used... Uh Oh, what's it called? Let me check my apps directory real quick. I think it's just like uh, photo, photo rescue. That's it. Photo rescue. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's worked for me quite well. So if uh, if she's just reformatted the card but hasn't shot a whole bunch of images to rewrite on that card, then there's a chance you could rescue images off of that. It's pretty handy. It just goes through and pulls out anything that looks like an image, and some of them may still be corrupted, but sometimes you can find stuff on there using that. It's definitely saved my butt a couple of times. I mean, the main thing to remember is that for the most part, with, with the way memory works, uh, on a drive or on a, on a stable memory, not RAM, um, the, it's all there. It's just been tagged as you can write over this. So the first is when it's immediately been um, uh, erased, you know, the, uh, the information's all there. It just said, you know, it's available. It's made that space available. So uh, with a lot of these programs, you can really kind of dig in there and, uh, and find stuff if you, really, if you really need to. The one thing I'm a, a little paranoid about, and I tend not to, you know, both Aperture and, and iPhoto and all these other applications that do this will, will have, you know, do you want to erase the photos as soon as you've loaded them? I tend to be a little, uh, I like to say no. <laughs> and then I like to look at the photos, yep. and then I like to erase the card manually. It's it's a, just a it's a process because I've ha I've been in that in that same boat um, where something happened like that. Yeah, I I got a couple of best practices I'd like to suggest to try to prevent this from happening. Number one, don't share memory cards with other people or even other cameras. If you're going to use an SD card in camera number one, make sure that you only use it in camera number one. Format it for use in that camera, and don't stick it in camera number two unless you're going to reformat it. My also I also have another piece of advice: reformat your cards in the camera. Don't do it on the desktop, do it in the camera, and do it in the camera you're going to use the card in. So those might have prevented this sort of problem. It sounds to me like the card might have had some formatting issues. Without having the card in our hand, Terry, I'm sorry we can't get more concise than that. We're going to move on to Kevin Galambos, or Galambos, or Galambos. I apologize, Kevin, for not knowing how to pronounce your last name. Um, it's a simple question. I was wondering, which is better, Prime or Zoom? Well, that's a loaded question. Well, you know, I believe the forces of Prime are going to defeat the forces... Oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I, this has to do with lenses. Prime meaning, uh, you know, a fixed focal length lens, and zoom meaning, you know, a variable focal range lens. And the school of thought, Kevin, is, is that Prime lenses are generally uh, almost always sharper... But better is kind of a weird thing to say because if I got a prime lens in my bag and it's 50 millimeters, but I need a 200 millimeter lens to get the shot and I have a 25 to 200 millimeter zoom, I'm going to use the zoom because the better choice is the one that will get me the shot. I'm not so concerned about which is sharpest. How about you, Fred? What do you think? You know, um, I, I went through this for a while and um, I am... Um, just as recently as this weekend, I was out shooting uh, in trying to force myself into using only primes, and I wish 
that I was shooting zooms. And I know we talked about this a while back that zooms are have come a long way since the day when I made the commitment to shoot only primes. So I'm 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 coming back to the uh, to the zoom side again. I think if those if that glass is sharp enough, it makes sense to have it in your bag just to eliminate the the lens swap and and putting your sensor in danger of getting dust on it and all that. Yeah, one thing that's almost always true is that a, a prime uh, you can tend to get with a better light sensitivity with a, a larger aperture. So it's pretty rare to find a zoom lens that can go down, you know, below f2 or even uh, higher than that. A lot of times, 2.8, where you can get a lot of primes that will go much lower than that. So I tend to find myself in low light situations pulling out uh, the primes a lot more often. Yeah, zooms are certainly more convenient. I will say that, you know, I have to guess that a, a pretty strong majority of the images I've ever had published in books and magazines and such have been taken with zooms, even though I own many primes. I'm not worried about whether I make an image with a prime or a zoom because there's an old saying, 98% of all lenses are sharper than 99% of all photographers. <laughs> so. Hey, Scott, with that, I, I have to jump off and run to a, a quick meeting. But Okay. Well, we were just about to wrap up, and and Fred, uh, where where can people find out more about you? You can always find out more about me. First and foremost, uh, you can find more about Lightroom at adobe.com slash Lightroom. But uh, if you want to follow me in particular, I'm at frederickvan.com. Thanks for being on the show, Fred. You're welcome, always. Thanks, Scott. Next Thanks, week, I we're going to have an interview with Ryan. And how do we pronounce his last name? Brenizer. Yeah, and he is uh, one of the columnists for, I think, the photography columnist, if not one of the photography columnists for Amazon. We had scheduled him. We had some technical difficulties some last technical week, so we're going to have him on next so week. So we're trying to have him back on. Uh, we, we have still some videos we're working on. Alec is working on a pano stitching. I'm, I'm a little behind on it, but I should, we should have this up on Monday. Uh, we have it recorded now. It's just a matter of uh, formatting and stuff. So it should be up on... Uh, on Monday afternoon, and it's just going to be kind of like the HDR one, except for putting uh, except for putting panos together. Fred is making a movie about removing people through photo merge. Personally, I'm against removing people. Uh, I like people. I don't want them removed. I think we should all try to encourage as many people to hang around as possible. Hey, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to bring the photo merge in. You know, I'm going to erase you. <laughs> Uh, we are shooting my tripod movie again uh, <laughs> tomorrow afternoon, so that'll be up when it's up, and uh, that's the way that goes. So you know, we're we're trying. These are bonuses, so you can count on the show being recorded every Thursday, up about Friday, you know. But uh, in between, we'll try to throw some bonuses in, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna log off here real quick. Want to find out? Does uh, anyone left? That would be me, Alex, and Ron. Have a tip. I'll go ahead and toss one out, just uh, because I've been going through some old photos, and especially back in the in the film days, I know I really had a tendency to just look for the the artsy shots and try to get you know well composed landscapes and all that kind of stuff. And these days, and I think this is much less of an issue with with digital. But you know, I I really realized looking back on my old photos that just shooting random stuff and you know what's the place I'm at look like and people standing around and all that kind of stuff is really important because a lot of times those end up a few years later being a lot more interesting than something where you spend a whole lot of time trying to get this perfectly composed photo so just generally don't be afraid to just shoot random stuff take your camera along I usually I'll walk around with a, a point and shoot as well as a 
uh, an SLR when I'm traveling. And a lot of times I'll just, you know, pull the point and shoot out and just snap random things out the window. And, and a lot, you know, years later, I'll look at it and be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Whereas the well-composed photo, I have no idea where it's at. It's a, it's a beautiful-looking landscape or a tree, but, I, you know, it, it doesn't have a sense of place to it. So I guess that's my tip. Don't be afraid to shoot. You get better when you shoot. Yep. Well, um, real quick, want to mention that over on the blog, which has been very, very busy, very popular, we've added a second server. Which has already been crunched. <laughs> so the third server will be added by the 17th of the month. And that's it. I'm not adding another one. So if it's, We're going to have to find something else. You all yeah, have exactly. to pay for a fourth server if you want me to add it. I, that'll be the third one I bought and I'm done buying servers. But we, we love having the traffic over there. We have a post at least every day. And we have, an, we have a poll, a new poll. The last poll results are up, by the way. It was Canon, then Nikon, then I believe Pentax, then Olympus, and those four cameras were 93% of our audience. So we can we can make 93% of our audience happy if we're talking about one of those four brands. Surprised to say, by the way, Sigma, 0%. 0% of our respondents picked Sigma. I was surprised by that. I guess I should have thrown Panasonic on the list instead. Um, this poll we have now is really simple. Do you shoot JPEG? Do you shoot RAW? Or do you shoot both? Go ahead and check the poll out. We'll have it up there for two weeks. We'll announce the results. We have our Flickr discussion group, our Flickr critique group, which Alex now has more than 500 members. People aren't afraid wow. to jump in there. And I'm hoping that, uh, Ron, uh, you, you, I know you've critiqued a few images. You get back in there and critique some. I appreciate it. Sure. Alex, everybody, let's critique some of these guys' images and some of these gals' images. Let them know we appreciate them being there. And we want you to critique images, but please be nice. Remember, our Flickr discussion forum is not going to turn into a snarky, mean place like some photography boards. We're going to be friendly and help each other. No name calling. The, the, no the, rough stuff. I think the operative term to really, to, you know, that we think about in the Pixel Core. We were just we were just having this discussion about critiques in, within the Pixel Core, and we call it uh, ruthless compassion. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, the idea is is that you really want to be ruthless about it. You really want to be picking at what people are. You know, the idea is to improve our work. Right. And if we all say, "Oh, great job, nice work," da 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 da, that doesn't really help you know what 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 you really need is that creative constructive uh, criticism the key is to also be compassionate and realize that people are attached to what they're posting up there and so so you know find ways to say it that uh, that have them um, uh, you know kind of move that direction I, I use a lot of questions I'm yeah. a big question person like did you think about this or do you that's a great approach. what do you think are you gonna do there and you know that that kind of thing well I think that pretty much covers it we're going to be back here next week with our merry band of twippers and we hope that you'll be here too check us out on itunes and by the way if for whatever reason you don't want to use itunes to listen to us that's fine but at least subscribe we're really trying to stay on that top list we <laughs> we somehow managed to be in the top 100 overall podcast even within shouting distance of our friend oprah uh for the almost ever since we've been on and that's right. because you all have been kind enough to subscribe through itunes so you know listen on whatever device you want any way you want but subscribe through itunes we'd appreciate it very much and ron where can uh, people find out what you're up to uh, as always, digitalcompositing.com is the best place for me. Okay. And, of course, Alex, pixelcore.tv, pixelcore.com. All those things. And if you want to look at some of my images, they're available at Avian 
stock, A-V-I-A-N, S-T-O-C-K.com. Also, uh, Padango.com, where I'm uh, president of the Padango Production Company. We do a lot of podcasts. This is not one that we do, but we help out with. And uh, so check that out. We want to hear from you. Check us out on the blog. Send us an email. Let us know what you're doing. And by all means, whatever you do this week, make it a rule that you're going to pick up your camera, your manual, and your tripod, and go have fun with photography. We'll see you next week on TWIP.